Pastor Xavier Reese and the power of sin and the simple truths to conquer it. Our sin nature is never eradicated, yet we have been given a divine nature to live above it, 2 Peter 1, 3-5. No degree of legalism can put sin to death, but only intensify it and enslave us. No extent of mysticism can escape it. No amount of asceticism will diminish it. Only the resurrected power of Christ. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. With the warm summer weather upon us, I wonder how many people tried those 30-day wonder diets, maybe even you. Well, today, as he continues his study in the book of Colossians, Pastor Xavier offers a program that's guaranteed to get you into spiritual shape. And the best part is, it will work. So open up your Bible to chapter 3, and let's join him for today's lesson. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. The message is entitled, Live the Risen Life. The power for a sanctified life comes only through a personal relationship through Jesus Christ as we allow him to live through us. No other way. Let me read our text. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Here are the three chief characteristics of the risen life. First, the practical devotion of the believer, verse 1 and 2. Secondly, the practical reasoning of the believer in verse 3 and 4. And then thirdly, the practical obedience of the believer in verse 5 through 7. Notice first in verse 1, the believer is to have a heart after the things of God. The apostle tells them that in view of the fact that they were raised with Christ, they were to seek those things which were above. Literally, keep on thinking about heavenly things. Whatever I am thinking about constantly reveals the desires of my heart, which in turn reveals where my treasure is, which all will dictate my lifestyle. What is it that you're thinking about all the time? That's your God. That's the master passion that you serve. You see, it must be Christ. Now notice secondly, verse 3 and 4. We have the practical reasoning of the believer. In other words, why do we do this? Verse 3. The apostle reminds them that they had died in the past. That's the first reason. They were dead to the world and the things of the world as a course of satisfaction and fulfillment, as the goal of life and the meaning for life. You understand that? 
Paul is telling the Colossians, hey guys, you're dead. What are you doing being alive to these things? You're dead to them. You ready for it? This is what Paul is saying. Stop it. <laughs> you do it to your kids all the time. Parents, remember they're little? They got, Don't touch it. No. That's what God tells us. That's what Paul is saying. Now, if you don't have the ability, it would be unfair for him to tell you no. It would be unfair for him to say stop it, right? So if he's telling you as a Christian to stop it, that means that you have the ability. And you also have the choice to obey or disobey. It's just that simple. You see, the act of faith is to live out a crucified life. Isn't that what Paul says in Galatians 2.20? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of God, God who loved me and gave himself for me. Crucified the Christ in the world. Whoa. The believer's hope is the imminent return of Jesus at any time for his church. Do you realize that? This hope is called the blessed hope in Titus 2.13. Blessed hope. What great comfort. You see, this is the practical reasoning of the believer who has risen in Christ. That's why we live the way we do. Now notice thirdly, verse 5 through 7. We have the practical obedience of the believer. I knew you were headed there, Pastor. See, it comes down always to that, doesn't it? <laughs> it always comes down to you, to me. Obedience. Notice first, in verse 5, the apostle tells the Colossians that they were to put to death sin in their lives. The word therefore refers to a conclusion of what precedes. You know that clearly. In view of that, that their heart's desires are in heaven and Christ, in view that their minds are on things above, in view that they died with Christ and their lives are hidden with Christ in God, in view that Christ will appear and they will be with him, in view of all these, the believer is to be diligent to slay all that is opposed to God and his word, which attempts to make him live under its power on the earthly sphere instead of the heavenly where he sits. Wow. You see, the imperative command is not an option, is it? But a requirement to slay their members which are on the earth. Now, take note that our members are the vehicles for sin and its ultimate goal of expression through our eyes, hands, ears, and mind, etc. Now, Paul is not suggesting that we cut off our hand, pluck out our eye, even as Jesus was not suggesting that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 28. What Jesus was teaching was that sin is so severe, so dangerous to our life, that it would be much better if you entered into heaven losing an arm, a hand, an eye, if it meant your salvation. For what good does two good eyes do you in hell? He's not talking about plucking an eye out or cutting a hand off because you've got another one. He's talking about the attitude of the heart, but he's also talking about the severity of sin. Sin will destroy you a piece at a time, a day at a time. 
Our sin nature that produces sin is so closely associated with our members by becoming its vehicle, so he is using them synonymously. This is called metonymy, such as the phrase, lend me an ear. Well, the guy's not saying cut your ear off and give it to him. He's saying, listen to me. The ear is so associated with listening that he says, lend me an ear. He is saying, put to death your members. He's identifying the members of our body, which are the ultimate expression of our heart and sin, and he's using them synonymously here. That's what he's doing. Now, having done that, notice secondly here, the apostle tells the Colossians to put to death Five sins. Not that there's not more than five sins, but five will get the message across. Let me read here. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, first thing I want you to notice, the order shows us that the progressive action of sin goes, has birth in our hearts, allowing sin nature to spiritually rape us to give birth to sin if we don't put it to death when it presents itself. Very important. The progression is in reverse. It begins with the expression and the last thing points to the heart. So it's in reverse progression here presented. But notice thoroughly here that there's a close association between idolatry and fornication because of the pagan religious practices. But I don't think it's limited just to the culture and to the day of Paul. I think today there's a very close association between fornication and idolatry. Whenever you idolize a boy or a girl, you will do anything and everything, even sacrifice your own purity, because they're your idol. You sacrifice yourself for them. Fornication and idolatry is always tied together in Scripture, and I see it also in life. These sins are identified with the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. The works of the flesh, those who do not know God. Let's go through these five. He begins with fornication, pornea. Pornea is always first on Paul's list of sexual sins and refers to illicit sexual intercourse. Before marriage or being single and living with someone. That's fornication, okay? When the word is used in the context of marriage, the emphasis is adultery. We get our word pornography from it. So pornea has to do with anything sexual outside of the design, role, and purpose of God in marriage. No person who lives the lifestyle of a fornicator will ever inherit the kingdom of God, even though they call themselves Christians. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says that. A harsh truth you have to look at, people. Okay? If you're fornicating, if you're into sexual sin, whether it be adultery or whatever it is, and that's where you live at, and you call yourself a Christian, the Bible says you won't inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty harsh to the natural mind. But remember, God is holy. 
God's will is your sanctification in Christ Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, to present your body holy. Now, he moves on to uncleanness, which refers to general impurities and perversions that come in connection with fornication by defiling one's body and the holy purpose of sexual union with one's mate in marriage. Ladies, listen to me very, very well. This is what the Bible says and gives a very focused and very fervent expression regarding sex for the woman. There, the emphasis is always greater on the woman. There must be a reason for it. I don't think God's a chauvinist pig. This is what the Bible says. When sex takes place, the Bible tells us that a woman is humbled by the man. I'm talking outside of marriage. She gives her honor to one who is not her husband, and she is defiled, and she plays a whore while in her father's house. Heavy words. Ladies, you are the sentinel of your own purity. You've blown it in the past, then maintain your spiritual virginity in Christ. God will honor that. You honor God. He moves on to passion, which means lust for that which is forbidden. That leads to sexual excesses. Then he says evil desires, which means sexual desires that have gone bad and control a person regarding their sexual appetite. We see this today. You see, the two passion and evil desires belong together. Lust and evil desires, one leads to the other. Today, we are so saturated with junk, pornography, all kinds of junk. People are slaves. The world caters to it. And they think it doesn't destroy relationship between women and men and marriages. Doesn't harm children. You gotta have brain damage to say that. It's a billion dollar industry. Men, be awful careful. It'll destroy you. Stay away from it. Covetousness. A longing for something that belongs to someone else with the idea of more greediness insatiableness, not being able to be filled. Now the context is sexual sin. So it must refer to another's wife, husband, daughter, son, boyfriend, girlfriend, or any other person that you use to satisfy your own sexual appetite without their concern and without the perspective for them. That's what he's talking about. Covetousness is idolatry, Paul says, due to the fact that they're uh, these become the very things our lives are focused on instead of God. Really confirming the Ten Commandments. The last commandment, shall not covet thy neighbor's wife, goods, so on and so forth, right? Notice Paul says covetousness is idolatry. Whatever you and I allow to fill and control our minds and hearts, that becomes our God, the master passion that drives our life. Now, please don't misunderstand this list is not a moral code, but the ability to put off the domination and the dominion and control of sin over your life through the person of Christ. This is not something you can just do yourself and not do these things. These are the things that you can live above in Christ and through Christ. No other way. Now notice thirdly, 
the apostle gives the Colossians two reasons for putting these particular sins to death. So he doesn't just come, he gives reasons. First, and there are only two. First in verse 6, Paul tells them that due to these very sins mentioned, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 6, the sons of disobedience are who? Those who don't know God, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. The tense is the present tense. It is being exercised against men and women in the world today. You can read Romans chapter 1, verse 18, 27, and 28, and there are men and women in the world who God's wrath is being poured on. We just don't know when, which ones. And it says, and they receive their just due. So sometimes God takes care of business here. But certainly he'll take care of business there, okay? The word wrath depicts a settled feeling of anger, a habitual attitude determined by the holiness of God. Habakkuk 1.13, he's of pure eyes and to behold evil with any source of permission or condonance. If God did not judge sin, he could not be holy. If he doesn't judge sin, then he's a liar. He cannot be God. Have you ever thought about that? Paul teaches us that sin is the object of God's wrath, not people, by the phrase, because of these things. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner and seeks his repentance, even pleading with the sinner. Listen to God. Come, let's reason together. Though your sins be red as crimson, I'll make them white as snow, Isaiah 118. Can you imagine God pleading with the sinner? Yet if the person rejects repentance, God has no choice but for his wrath to fall upon him. John 3.36 says, He who has a son has life. He who has not a son has not life, and the wrath of God abides in him. Heavy words. Don't pass them up. So the first reason, God's wrath. A pretty good reason to turn. Pretty good reason not to live in those sins. Second, Paul tells them that they also once walked and lived in those sins. This is great. This is great. The direct teaching for their lives was clear and obvious. This is the way they used to live in the past and should not be living like that in the present. It's real simple, people. They escaped the wrath of God by turning from their sins and lifestyle of sin. If they turned to them again, the wrath of God was still the same. It hates sin and it has to judge sin, does it not? So they were to understand that sin is inconsistent with the divine nature and the risen life. Am I talking about perfection? No. But let me tell you, I can hit the stinking bullseye now. Sometimes I miss it. But I'm a real good shot by the grace of God. You understand? Before, I couldn't hit the bullseye no matter how hard I tried. You see, we also walked in the sphere of sin in times past. We were controlled and enslaved by those sins. And I think the greatest benefit is to remember our lives. First, recognizing how far we were from God in the past. Secondly, recognizing how near we are to God now by Christ in the present. That's good. You know, a person one day came to a doctor and he examined and says, you have cancer. He says, but you know, it's in the early stages, and I am positive, I am absolutely certain that we can cut it all out, you can live a normal life. The man says, well, you know, I, I really don't want to get cut. Uh, and he thought he could attempt to do it in himself, so he went with foods and minerals and juices and all that. Time went by. 
he began to feel worse. He came back to the doctor that had given him that advice, and he says, Doc, you, you got to operate. He says, well, let me take a test. They took all the tests only to find out that it was too late. The cancer has spread through his entire body. Now, anyone hearing that story would say, how foolish. Why did he not take that cancer seriously? But isn't this the story of every person who does not take sin seriously? Thinking they can beat it on their own? Only to find out it that destroys them? Our sin nature is never eradicated. Yet we have been given a divine nature to live above it. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 5. No degree of legalism can put sin to death, but only intensify it and enslave us. No extent of mysticism can escape it. No amount of asceticism will diminish it. Only the resurrected power of Christ. Our members are said to be instruments of righteousness or unrighteousness in Romans 6.13. Do you realize that? Literally, it can be translated weapons of righteousness or weapons of unrighteousness. Have you ever thought of your members as weapons? They are. This hand will either build me up or tear me down. These eyes will build me up or tear me down. I have a gun. I'm a policeman. I go to a home call. A man is holding his wife hostage. I am forced to defend the innocent life and take the man's life. I've used it positively. I take that gun, I go back gangbanging. I've used it wrong. You see this hand, this eye, this mind will either build me up or destroy me. They're weapons as well as other people. Remember that the passion of sin works in our members through our sin nature, bringing forth fruit, Romans 7, 5 says. James describes it as war in our members in James 4, 1. The problem is not in our members, but in our heart. Jesus says, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, adultery in Matthew 15, 19. The heart is a problem. And once you sow, then you reap. You cultivate. It's cultivated in the heart, Jeremiah 79. Deceitful, desperately wicked. Therefore... Paul tells us, let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust thereof, in Romans 13, 14. We are to be aware that the lust of the flesh is against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, Galatians 5, 17. We are to flee youthful lust, 2 Timothy 2, 22. We are not to tempt ourselves, James 1, 14. We are not to think that we cannot fall, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. For to be very aware of this, how do we put sin to death daily then? Through the person of Christ, Romans 7, 24. Through the life of the Spirit, Romans 8, 13. Through obedience. This is the practical obedience of the believer who is risen with Christ. And so Paul has told the Colossians here that the risen life is based on these three chief characteristics. The practical devotion of the believer, the practical reasoning of the believer, and the practical obedience of the believer. I've told you before of the two Eskimos that were in a bar, right? And they're drinking, they're all drunk, and they're talking about their dogs. And there's one saying, you know, I got this white dog, this black dog. They're always fighting. The guy goes, you know, which one wins? The guy goes, 
the one I feed the most. Who's winning in your life? That's the one you're feeding the most. It's real simple, people. May God give us wisdom to live the risen life. Pastor Xavier Reese and the secret to fighting sin, a secret that's revealed in the Word of God. And you can pick up a copy of today's message, Live the Risen Life, on CD for only $4. Now this also includes what Pastor Xavier shared the last time we were together. So once again, the title to ask for is Live the Risen Life, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please be sure and include the call letters of this station somewhere in your correspondence. This information is helpful when we check on the impact of this outreach in your area. Do you want to see a biblical marriage? Then look to the next Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese. Be sure and invite a friend to join in as well. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 